before the 2012 election, and man, weren't those the days, uh, CNN posted this quiz related to the differing beliefs even among Christians in the United States, and it was provocative, provocatively titled, Do You Believe in a Red State Jesus or a, a Blue State Jesus? This is what it looked like. The quiz asks questions based on various passages in the Gospels and try to tell you whether you lean towards Republican or Democratic values based on Jesus' words. And I'm going to help administer, a, you're not going to get a quiz today, um, but I'm going to help administer a Bible text uh, identification test in a couple weeks to my students in this New Testament class at Duke. And they'll have to try to figure out, based on like an unaddressed scripture passage, whether that passage comes from, from John or from Luke or Mark, or like, or like if it's more likely Galatians or James, which that's an easy one, right? Um, but this CNN quiz, like, it essentially comes down to a red state Republican Jesus whose main talking point is John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, or a quote-unquote blue state Democrat Jesus from Matthew 25, 40. Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, so you did to me. So you can see like this oversimplification in this dichotomy, but there's also kind of truth behind this caricature, right? So often faith and action are, are pried apart in our lives. Like we, and in our church communities and how they form. Like we'll, we'll kind of do our um, time talking and thinking about Jesus and then back to the real world on Monday, right? Um, it seems like you have to choose between also in some of the ways these lines are drawn, concern for the poor and some sort of robust telling of the good news that tries to account for sin um, both individually and on corporate levels of humanity. But our passage today from the first letter of John, it reads kind of more like a sermon than even an epistle or a theological tome, has some answers for this. John writes, this is how we know love. This is how we know love. I like to think that, that throughout this passage, it's like that screen from 90s, uh, PBS uh, television, like kids' Saturday morning television, that says, the more you know. Because like, like, several times in this passage, it says, this is how we know. This is how we know love. This is how we know we remain in the truth. This is how we know that God remains in us. This is how you know. You wanted to know? This is how you know. Obsensively, there was like, some sort of break or trauma that happened to this church community that John's writing to. They split, or maybe they were on the verge of a split, and um, he's specifically writing against these antichrists. And I was reminded this week in that New Testament class that for all the, the like, excitement and we get all like froth, frothy mouthed at antichrists and revelation, it doesn't even show up in revelation. It's from 1 John. So 1 John's way more exciting of a book than you thought it was, right? But every time the term antichrist shows up in 1 John, it's lowercase. And it just refers to someone who doesn't teach, who doesn't claim to know this Jesus, who doesn't teach these fundamental beliefs about 
Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that doesn't believe that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine, that doesn't talk about how Jesus opens up a new reality at the nexus of a new humanity that's both tasted sin and death and temptation to its fullest, but has overcome it, was raised by the Spirit to this new everlasting eternal life that starts now and includes us. Any teaching that's not that is anti-Christian. It's, it's lower, it's less than, it's, it, it's, it's not the fullness. So if I lost you there for a second, why all this matters is what theologians call Christology. It means who Jesus is. And it matters because that tells us what God's love is like, what it looks like, what it feels like, and then what our love should be like, what our love is made out of the substance of our love. And you see, for the letter of First John, John, human love is always downstream from God's love. It's never at the, the, the top, it's never reservoir at the bottom, it's just midstream, but it's downstream of God's love. And the next chapter says, we love because God first loved us. So the big question for First John is how do we know love? And the writer, probably also the writer of John's gospel, scholars debate this a little, is known in that gospel, in John's gospel, not by his name, but only by a nickname. Every time this character shows up throughout the gospel, his nickname is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Wouldn't Wouldn't that be great? Like, if no one knew your name, but they just knew you as the one who Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. So I think he's uniquely qualified to write about what love is. And he writes, this is how we know love. Like, colon, Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is how we know love. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Y'all, that's a sermon in and of itself. It's really hard to like re-sermon a sermon that's really <laughs> great, but I'll try, right? Notice how full this love is, how it demolishes this false dichotomy between a life of love which is based on belief and a life that's based on compassion and action, that our faith, our belief, our trust, unites us with this faithful one, Jesus, who laid down his life, so we join in the life-laying-down family trade with our elder brother for our other siblings. That's what this is all about. The next verse then broadens this mandate and intensifies it, right? It says, but if a person has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, and that person doesn't care, how can the love of God remain in them? Lest you thought that this life-laying-down commandment was reserved for a special few who are supposed to be martyrs or die in burning buildings, this is a far more democratic love. This is a far more earthly and normal and daily sort of love. In essence, you look around at the immense and subtle needs of those around you, and you let God's love extend through you. This is sometimes the hardest thing to do with people you know very well and who know you very well. To 
to know their need and then to attempt in some small way to meet their need, not as God, but as an extension of God's love. He says, otherwise, how can you consider God's love being alive and active, intimate and organic, if you shut off this vision and this follow-through for those around you? Notice that word, remain. It says, how can God's love remain in them? Some translations have kind of a more like Lebowski-friendly rendering of this word, and it's remain. It's abide, you know, instead of remain, that love abides in us. This is fundamentally a presence word. How can God abide or reside or set up a home long-term in a place where there isn't sensitivity to pain and need? This is the whole shape of God's personality, responding and, and seeing us in our need and in our pain and in our sin and in our hurt. This is from everlasting, a God who existed, who was not created, but existed in a loving, giving, and receiving community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, without need, without fear, without pain. Can you imagine a, a family, like even the best of our families, can you imagine a family that you grew up in that didn't have fear, pain, sin, or conflict, or scarcity driving our interactions with those we're closest to? There wasn't, there wasn't any hierarchy or imbalance or scarcity. When we say that God is love, there's a certain like dynamism and movement and relation built in essentially to that character, to who God is. And everything else that we say about God flows from that reality. God is love, and everything else flows from the fact that God is love. So when we say that God is just, it's in relation to telling the truth about this God who is love and how a rightly ordered creation flows out of how this logic of love works. When we say that God is merciful, it's in relation to love and grace extending into creation from God, whose power manifests itself in giving and making and forgiving and remaking. God is love. So the second we little children, we participants in the life of God, drawn up through faith in Jesus, don't participate in that sort of dynamic, ongoing love life, how indeed can the love of God be at home in us? It's not as if God's presence has been like pushed out or escaped. Like I think God's presence is far less fragile or afraid. Think of Psalm 139. Where can I go from your presence, where can I flee from your spirit? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn or settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand holds me fast. It says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. God's presence isn't afraid. It isn't running away from us. It's not willing to become any less loving either. So when we stop abiding, we cut ourselves off from God who wants to abide in us. If we abide in God, God surely abides in us, and this mutual indwelling propels us to care and to give ourselves in big and small ways. 
I, I, I kind of learned about this, and I'm going to embarrass uh, my dad is here, but years ago when I came home from college and, and I um, was, was coming home to spend time with my family, and my dad was, was gone, and my dad was gone on a church trip, and I never, I never knew my dad to be one to go on church trips, um, but he had gone um, to uh, pray in Stark, Florida, and that's an aptly named place, because uh, it's not great. Um, and Stark, Florida is where they execute people in the state of Florida. And so he had gone with his parish to pray outside of death row. And I, I didn't know my dad to be one of those people, but what I got to see is God's love, like, propelling him towards the care and concern of others, especially, in that case, someone who is not seeable, right? Um, and, and I can't tell you how impactful that was on me uh, as a college student because I knew in that in that case I was looking at, at some and I, and I know my dad and I love my dad and he's shown me God's love in so many uh, implicit ways but I was seeing someone that would not be there and had no business being there apart from the fact um, that God showed his love to us and called him through his church community to show that love and care and extend that love to someone else. Um, it's an amazing thing to see, to, to see someone act out of character or what you thought was their character only because of what God is doing in their life, right? Um, and I think that's something we need to have our, our radars tuned uh, in each other and, and um, be more free with how we uh, speak that and um, notice that and affirm that in each other. Like, I see this in you, and I know that you're great and all, but I know that you're only really doing this because you know God, and God knows you, and God abides in you, and that abiding love is extending out into the world through you, and that's an amazing thing. We should get really good at that. You can also write notes if, if, if you don't like to go up to someone and say something like that. Um, and so John continues in his, in his story about how we know things. And the next thing he wants us to know how we know is how we know we belong to the truth. So often we feel inadequate for this sort of emptying, extending life. And John has another answer for that. He says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and reassure our hearts in God's presence. Even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Some of you have become part of this church community, like an integral part of this church community, like more integral than you give yourself credit for, and you still feel like you aren't good enough or you aren't smart enough or you aren't holy enough. That you're somehow not all the way a part of this body of Christ because you don't always feel God's presence or because sometimes you fall into temptation or recurring sin or because you suffer from certain recurring emotional states that make you feel distant from God or from others or maybe even sometimes from yourself. To that, the good news is that you can belong to the truth and have your heart reassured in God's presence because God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. 
God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. And this isn't some sort of threat. Like, <laughs> that could sound really threatening, like, like a judge with videographic evidence of us, right? But it's, it's not that. It's the promise of a loving father who knows you completely, who, who knows you well enough to know when you're afraid and when you're hurt and when you're acting out of fear and hurt. And when that, that fear and hurt like robs you of your true identity as a beloved son or daughter and that, that God sits with this vantage to know what you need, when you need it, and how you need to best get rest, to best get returned, to best be welcomed back. So finally, John talks about the last thing we need to know how we know how we know that God remains in us. This is the sort of knowing that has the end in mind even when we can't see or when we don't think something good is possible. Maybe this is what St. Paul means in Romans 8.28. We know that God works all things together for the good of the ones who love God, for those who are called according to God's purpose. But even before that, in the same chapter in Romans, verses 14 through 17, it says, All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. You're a son and a daughter before you're someone who God has a great plan for. And that's only in the context of that, that divine family that, that those plans even make sense. Because your life might get harder. <laughs> your, life, your, your life might involve more struggle and endurance than you thought was possible, but that happens with others in this family. He continues, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. With this spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children, but if we are children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ if we really suffer with him so that we can also be glorified with him. Do you see how we're united with Jesus in this family as a son or as a daughter who's beloved and in whom God is well pleased? Finally, back in our letter of 1 John, we come to this amazing chain of verbs that describe or remind us what it's like to be children of loving Father. For someone like me, it's, it's a reminder of what a healthy life I've known. For some of us maybe in this room, like your earthly parents didn't do this really well. Um, and so it didn't show this sort of love and care. And so this might be both like opening some wounds, but also casting a vision for something you never knew was possible because we're neither condemned by God nor our own hearts, and because we can be confident in our relationship to God and feel free in God's presence. It says, we receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love each other as he commanded us. The person who keeps his commandments remains in God, and God remains in him, abides. And this is how we know that God remains in us, 
because of the spirit that was given to us. Check out this, this sort of chain that is happening. And, and this is just kind of a little, like, when you get these chains or these loops in scripture, it can be confusing. So just start drawing pictures. It's amazing the pictures that you get. And you start to see a picture of this, this sort of love life that is ongoing, infilling, outpouring, in God abiding, this, this sort of life. It's outgoing because this, this is a cycle. It's not, it's not linear. You haven't arrived. It's circular and, and maybe even more than just a cycle that feels like you're on a treadmill. It's more of a spiral where you go further up and further in each time you, you loop around and get closer and closer to God. Um, maybe it's like a vine for that image of abiding um, that is wrapping itself around in this life is infilling. We rely on God. You can see this every step of the way. We rely on God. We receive from God. We ask God. We obey God. We believe. We love. We abide in God because God gives us the Spirit. We want God to answer, to provide, to fill, to adopt, to make. But it's also an outpouring life. We've been so infilled that then we can outpour we're not only given the resources, we're given everything we need, and we've been shown that way to live. Think of like Philippians 2 when it talks about this Jesus who, being in the very form of God, did not consider that something to exploit, but emptied himself, became in human form and became the form of a slave, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself and then was glorified, was raised so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess on heaven and earth and even under the earth that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've been shown what this looks like and we've been included in, grafted in, like united to Jesus. We go where he goes. And then finally, this God-abiding life is, is triune in its shape. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we've received from God. We believe in Jesus, and God gives us the Spirit. We've been called in and given a seat at this table, this inner life of God. We've been made members of the household of God and been given a home with the God who always just wants to make God's home with us. If you read through the Bible, start at the very beginning and just see how God desperately wants to be at home with us. From the garden, through exile, in wilderness, in the tabernacle, and eventually in Jesus, who John 1.14 says, became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. Tabernacled, pitched a tent, put on skin, and became at home with us. To the final word in Revelation where it says that the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven and God will be our God and will be his people and will be at home with God. I'll close with more of these abiding words, this time from the mouth of Jesus in John 15 as he's the end of John's gospel, which we didn't get to, to read um, in 
Lent, we, we were mostly at the beginning of John's Gospel, but the end has this extend, extended farewell discourse where he's talking to his disciples and assuring them and equipping them for everything they, they need um, in his absence. And so he says these, these words in John 15. And this is from the message too. I am the vine and you are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation is intimate and organic. The harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is, is dead wood, gathered up and thrown into the bonfire. But if you make yourselves at home with me, and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. This is how my Father shows who he is. When you produce grapes, when you mature as my disciples, I've loved you the way that my Father has loved me. Make yourselves at home in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain intimately at home in my love. That's what I've done. Kept my father's commands and made myself at home in his love. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these words and this vision of, of cozy, hospitable, homemaking in your love. Uh, Lord, don't let us go far from that. Don't let us cut ourselves off from that life-giving, life-generating, fruit-bearing love. Um, help us remember and not ever forget or distort that we know what love is when we look at a Jesus who laid his life down for us and calls us to do the same. Lord, equip us and energize us for that life. Fill us with the spirit that we might receive it. Give us eyes to see um, and attentive and uh, sensitive hearts to understand pain and suffering that we encounter. Give us thankful, generous hands to offer over what you've offered us in abundance. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.